Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of Dr. Music. I'm Matthew Marullo. Thank you so much for joining me again. In the last episode, I was talking about Scott Joplin, and I was discussing that although he's not considered a composer of classical music, the artistry of his music rises to such a level that his music has survived the test of time. And in that sense, he writes classics, which is why if I was teaching a course in classical music, I would definitely mention his name because he's not your ordinary everyday composer of ragtime music. His art really transcends the genre. Well, what about the American composer George Gershwin, who lived from 1898 to 1937? Is he a composer of classical music? Well, that's a more complicated question, because although Gershwin started his career as a Broadway composer, so he was composing in the popular style using the jazz idiom, later on, he started experimenting with a new type of music that blended classical forms with the jazz idiom. So he really synthesized a new art form, symphonic jazz. And in that sense, Gershwin, although he's definitely remembered for his really popular Broadway tunes like I Got Rhythm and Embraceable You and Our Love is Here to Stay, he composed in forms that really can be considered classical in style. He wrote an opera, Porgy and Bess. He wrote tone poems like Liszt or Dvorak, like an American in Paris. As a matter of fact, we spent one episode in season one about tone poems, and one of the pieces I talked about was an American in Paris. He wrote rhapsodies, like kind of like a piano concerto, like Rhapsody in Blue, and he also wrote a second rhapsody. And he wrote a formal piano concerto, Concerto in F, just like a classical-style piano concerto, except it was written in the jazz idiom. And that's exactly what I'd like to talk about today, because when you think of George Gershwin, you definitely think of his Broadway tunes, and you think of his really famous pieces, like Rhapsody in Blue, An American in Paris, and if you're into opera, Porgy and Bess. But a lot of people don't really know Concerto in F very much. It's one of his best pieces. It's a really great piece. And in a way, it resembles his Rhapsody in Blue in that it's for a piano solo and orchestra, but Rhapsody in Blue is rhapsodic. There's an improvisatory nature, so it's more of a jazz concerto, and there's no set form. Whereas in the Concerto in F, he kind of sticks to a classically inspired form. For example, the first movement of a traditional piano concerto is usually in sonata form. The first movement of Gershwin's piano concerto kind of resembles sonata form, but there are some elements that are missing. The second movement is a slow movement, and that's true of the classical piano concerto. And the third movement is a fast rondo movement, and that definitely is very characteristic of a classical piano concerto. What I'd like to do is focus on 20 measures in the first movement of Concerto in F. Not the first theme. Uh, the first theme is in the introductory part of the concerto. But the second theme in A-flat, just because I really think Gershwin works his harmonic magic with that theme. And just by looking at these 20 measures, you're going to really appreciate how Gershwin is so successfully able to blend the jazz language, the jazz idiom, with a classical structure, because his procedure is very classical in nature in the way that he suspends the tension, and yet it's written in a jazz idiom. Now, in order for me to effectively describe how this is done, I'm going to have to get into the nitty-gritty of some music theory. And I'm sure you know from my prior episodes that when I do talk about music theory, I do it in a very friendly manner. It's not my intention to scare you off with a lot of 
technical music theory jargon. Now, there is some terminology that I have to go through, and a lot of it I've actually spoken about in prior episodes, so hopefully it'll be familiar with you. One of the most important things I'd like you to remember is that the dominant chord in a key represents tension, and the tonic is the home key, and that chord represents resolution. And so the most basic progression in tonal music is from the dominant to the tonic. The other term that I'd like you to remember is the triad. A triad is a three-note chord that consists of a root, a third, and a fifth. Let me play a triad for you. So this is the root, the third, and the fifth. Now, the strongest and most stable way you can write a chord is to have the root as your lowest note. In other words, the root is your bass. Kind of like this. Now, that chord that I just played, it was a C major chord. C was in the bass. And when the root is in the bass, that's considered the strongest voicing of the chord. Now, if you want it to be even stronger, you can have the melody as the root. So, again, the chord that I just played, the highest note was a C also. So, to sum up, if the root of your chord is in the bass, the lowest note, it's also in the highest note, you can't get any stronger or more stable than that. So, if you're a composer and you want to create tension, you don't do that, right? If you want to create tension, then you're not going to have the root and the bass, or even more, you also don't want the highest voice to be the root. Now, what, what happens with more complicated chords, like, for instance, jazz chords, is that you have other factors. You don't just have a root, a third, and a fifth. You could also have a seventh, and a ninth, and eleventh, and the most you could have is a 13th. So those are very colorful, rich chords. And I said jazz chords, but these types of chords can be found in classical music. So just because you hear a jazz chord doesn't mean it's jazz music. There's plenty of music in the 19th century that uses these types of chords, although it's not jazz music. It's the style that makes these jazz chords sound like jazz music. Here's a few examples. This is a ninth chord. Here's a 13th chord. Here's a 13th chord with an added note to it. And by the way, that chord that I just played is a dominant 13th, so it resolves to the tonic, like this. And here's one of Gershwin's favorite chords. It's an 11th chord. I'm leaving out little details. For instance, that chord that I just played happens to have a raised 11th. In other words, the 11th degree is up by a half step, chromatically. So just remember, a chord can have various degrees, like the root, the third, the fifth, the seventh, the ninth, eleventh, and the thirteenth. You don't have to have all those notes. You could leave some of them out when you're voicing a chord. But the strongest position is root position, and root position is when the root is in the lowest voice. In other words, the bass. Now I'm going to play that excerpt from the first movement of the Concerto in F that I was talking about, and then we'll discuss it. This is actually the second theme that Gershwin introduces in the beginning of the Concerto, 
And it's also when the piano comes in for the first time. It's a very important theme because it comes back in the climax of the third movement. So at the finale of the entire concerto, we hear this theme come back. And at the very end of the excerpt, the theme actually repeats, but the orchestra comes in at that point. I wish I could play the rest of the concerto, but they're just parts that I still can't handle. I can get through most of it, though. The first thing that I'd like to point out is that the theme itself is very simple. If I just play the main theme on the right hand, On the surface, that's really a lot of repeated notes, right? I'm playing C, 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 C over and over again, and then there's a few more notes. But what makes that theme beautiful and so lyrical is the changing harmonies. And that's the magic of Gershwin's harmony. It's amazing how he could make a very simple theme like that, which is essentially a repeated note, sound so lyrical by the way he voices jazz chords. Now, first of all, the theme is in the key of A-flat major. So I'd like you to remember that. It's in the key of A-flat major. But it begins on a C. Remember I said he keeps playing C, 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 C. And the reason he does that is because he doesn't want to start on an A-flat major chord. He wants to take you away from the home key immediately and gradually and gracefully get to A-flat. And yet when he gets to A-flat, it doesn't sound final, and we're going to understand in a minute why that is. What I'll do now is play one chord at a time so you can understand how Gershwin manipulates these rich jazz harmonies around that pretty simple melody. So first we have this. Well, that's a, a C dominant chord, but it's in a very weak position because he actually has the ninth in the bass. And remember I said the strongest position is when the root is in the bass, but when you have the ninth in the bass, it's a very weak position, and that creates tension. After that, he does this. That's a B-flat dominant seventh, but again, he has the ninth in the bass. So another weak position creates more tension. By the way, have you noticed that the left-hand accompaniment keeps doing these chromatic figurations like this?
that movement by half step. I've talked about that in other episodes. That's called a line cliche. A line cliche is when you color one chord by moving one of the factors chromatically. And I remember in one of the episodes I gave this example. There's that top note that keeps going up and down. That's a line cliche. You're just coloring one chord. And Gershwin loves doing that. He does that kind of thing all the time. Okay, so far we had a C dominant seventh chord in a weak position. Then we had a B flat dominant chord in a weak position. Next, he does this. That's an E flat dominant chord in a weak position. And notice through all of this, we keep hearing the C. So in some way, C is a factor. It's a part of all these chords. Sometimes it's actually the root. It's the main note of the chord in the melody. Other times it's not. But that's what makes this so interesting is that you keep hearing that C, but the chords are changing all the time. So we just had an E-flat dominant chord, and now we have this. And that is an A-flat chord, which is the key of the piece. So we finally get to A-flat, and this is in a strong position because the bass is A-flat. In other words, the bass is the root, so it's in a strong position. But the melody that we hear in the right hand is a B-flat, and the B-flat is the ninth of an A-flat chord. And that makes it sound less final. When you have a very high factor in the melody, it doesn't sound like just an A-flat triad like this. There's a little bit more tension when you add those other factors, so now it sounds like this. And besides that, there's even another added note. It's actually called an added sixth and that makes it sound even more jazzy. So to sum up, most of that melody, Gershwin uses rich jazz chords in weak positions, and he does that to increase the tension. There's tension there to begin with because he doesn't start in A-flat. The key is in A-flat, but the chords are removed from A-flat. He actually uses a very classical procedure in this harmonic progression. It's called a circle of fifths progression, and it would take me too long to describe that, you have to know some music theory to understand exactly what that is. It's a conventional progression, but he colors it with all of these added factors, you know, like ninths, for instance. And then when he finally gets to the A-flat chord, it's in a strong position, but the melody has a high factor. It has a ninth and makes it sound less final. So even though there's a release of tension, it doesn't sound 100% final. And the reason is because he's not done with the theme. There's a second part to the theme. So let's go over that. Now you'll recall that the next section went like this. What I'd like to do is play a reduction of that. In other words, a simplified version so you understand what's going on. Basically what Gershwin's doing there is he has chromatic harmony, harmony that's moving by half step. And you know on a piano, half step is every adjacent key. So the harmonies are going down by half step. And then that's repeated. And by the way, he ends up in F minor there, in case you're wondering. So that's repeated. And then 
He does the same thing, but it's transposed up. And that's transposed up to the key of G minor. And do you remember the term for when you repeat something, but it's transposed? I did talk about that. If you said sequence, you're right. So that's a sequence. Now remember, after that, we had this section. Well, those are pretty fancy chords. What he's doing there is he's going up chromatically. So a lot of this harmony is just going up chromatically, and it's increasing the tension. Because if you just go up by half step, you don't really feel like you're in any particular key. So he had a bunch of really 13th chords there. For instance, he had this one. Then he went to this one. Then he went to this one. And finally, he ends up on this. And you know what that is? That's the dominant chord of the key of A-flat, which is the key of this melody. He went through all those tense key changes, but he wound up on the dominant. So Gershwin is really doing what a lot of composers of the Romantic period do. They increase the tension by taking you away from the home key, and they make you wait for a resolution. And here's the question. Do we have a resolution ever? So far? Well, Remember, in the middle of that theme, he does go to an A-flat chord. Remember, A-flat was in the bass, but he weakens it with the notes that are in the melody. And in the second half of the melody, the part that I just played, it's really intense. He really takes you away from the home key by using chromatic harmony, harmonies that are going up by half step. But then he lands on the dominant of the original key. And does he resolve it? No, what he does is he repeats the entire melody, but this time the strings are playing a secondary melody, a counter melody to the main melody, which is still played by the piano. And you're probably asking, well, what happens at the end of the repetition? Does he land in the home key? Nope. Instead, there's a piano cadenza. What's a cadenza? It's a virtuosic passage for a solo instrument. And at the end of that cadenza, there's a lengthy passage for piano and orchestra, basically in the key of C. Okay, now, C is not our home key, right? Now, why is it in the key of C? Well, because C is the dominant of the key that he's going to. He's actually going to be going to the key of F major, and when he gets there, that's going to be the very first theme that I haven't even played for you yet. It's the theme that you hear at the very beginning of the concerto. But before we actually get to F major, Gershwin repeats the A-flat theme yet again and has yet again another weak cadence in A-flat. And then finally, we get a C dominant chord, and that C dominant chord finally takes us to F major, where we hear the very first theme that we heard in the introduction of the concerto. And here's the thing. The entire concerto is actually in the key of F, the theme that I played for you on the piano is in a secondary key, the key of A-flat. So really, the function of this entire theme that I've been discussing is to increase the tension, make you wait, don't resolve that tension, because what he wants to do is resolve it 
by going to the key of the entire concerto, F major. And we don't hear a resolution of F major really until that theme starts. In the beginning of the piece, we don't get a strong resolution of F major. And then all of a sudden we're in A flat, we don't get a resolution of that, and then finally we get the key of F major when he brings back the very first theme that he played at the beginning of the concerto. So this is really the romantic ideal of thwarting your expectations, increasing the tension, suspending that tension, making you wait, so that even though the entire concerto is in the key of F major, you don't really feel like you're solidly in F major until around 150 measures into the piece. That is not what a classical composer does, it's more like what a romantic composer does. Gershwin is writing a piano concerto in the jazz style, but using a romantic framework, a romantic philosophy, a romantic procedure. And that's why he's credited for essentially inventing a new genre called symphonic jazz. What I'd like to do now is play a recording of Eugene Ormandy conducting the Philadelphia Orchestra, and the concerto is played by Philippe Entremont. What you're going to hear in this excerpt is first the part that I've been discussing, the excerpt in A-flat. Of course, it's never resolved in A-flat. And then that's repeated. And after that is the piano cadenza. And then the section in C major. And remember, C major represents the dominant of the key of the entire piece. The entire concerto is in F. But instead of going right to F, Gershwin does a third playing of the A-flat theme. And again, A-flat is not resolved. Or actually, a better way of saying that is that it's resolved weakly, so we don't feel like we're solidly in A-flat. And then finally, he gives us a dominant, again, of F major. And that brings us solidly into the key of F major. And like I said, this is the first time that we really feel we're solidly in a key.
And again, at the very end of that excerpt, we are definitely solidly in F major, and he plays that uh, jazzy theme. Bum, 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 bum. And I'm sure you heard all the crackling in the background. I'm sorry about that, but this is a digital recording of an LP. I still have my records from when I was a teenager, and I really like this recording, so I transferred it to my computer. Well, you got a pretty fair dose of music theory, didn't you? Well, I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you come back next time, because one thing about Dr. Music, it just gets better and better.